The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Is this turned on? Oh, now I have power. Good afternoon. We're on. I should stop making comments. We're we're being recorded. (laughs) So welcome back to the afternoon. Uh, This afternoon, we're going to do a little more uh, work on what is it, how can can we be with grief? We're going to work a little bit more on, on wisdom. You know, we know we know now that grief is everywhere, that we share it with a lot of people. We know that we don't have to hide it. So, okay, now it's sitting here in the middle of the room. What are we going to do with it? So we're going to spend a little more time talking about how, how we're affected by grief and, and how to be present with grief. So uh, that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to start by singing to you. Hopefully this is going to work. Anaka vata sankara upada vaya domino upakita virnachanti tasam vupasamo suko. All things are impermanent, they arise and pass away. Having arisen, they come to an end. Their coming to peace is bliss. Again? Oh. Anakavata Sankara Upadavaya Domino Upakita Veniruchanti Tasam Vupasamo Suko All things are impermanent, they arise and pass away. Having arisen, they come to an end. Their coming to peace is bliss. What we're going to talk about is the law of anicca, change. Because really that's where loss finds its home, is in change. Sometimes change is something we like, and sometimes change is something we don't like. It can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant. It can be minor, it can be life-changing, but we're definitely talking about change here. Sometimes change is of our choosing. Generally, when we're talking about loss, it is not of our choosing. The very idea of loss is that something is gone that we were holding dear to us. There is a a lack of permanency in everything, everywhere. We all know this. We all know this. And yet, and yet, change, I I, I once wrote a a lovely poem, which I, I wish I had brought. The final line was, I'm totally in favor of change when it's my idea. When it's not my idea, yeah, change is a little more uncomfortable. But things change whether we like it or not. They change. 
We're in, a, we're in a shifting world. Things are not static. They're not stable. We have a myth about stability. We talked about myth about grief this morning. We have a myth about stability. This feels solid. This feels right. This will always be true. And this morning when I left home in a rush and the last words to my husband were, get out of the way... That wasn't exactly what I said, but it was close enough. He got the message, right? I called him halfway here to say, you know I didn't mean that. <laughs> right? Change. Change is, change is with us all the time. And we don't always pay attention to it. The change may be quick. It may be perceptible or imperceptible. Sometimes change happens so gradually on such a scale that we don't even see it. And then we wake up one day and say, when did that happen? How did that happen? There we are with this major change in our lives, and how did it happen? Because there's change, there's decay. I don't like to think of my body as decaying, but let me tell you, this knee is worthless. <laughs> it walks me around the room, but when, at night, it has trouble going upstairs. This was not always true. <laughs> you know, there it is. That's, that's, I live with that. We all do. We all have things about us that have changed that, you know, gee, I would rather that hadn't changed. <laughs> Decay, disintegration. It happens. Disintegration of relationships. Disintegration of, of our bodies. Disintegration of our plans. It happens. The vigor of youth becomes the weakness of old age. The sparkle of youth becomes a little more hidden. It may still be there, like New Jersey here. <laughs> Not that she's old. She's a lot younger than I am. Um, but it happens to us whether we want it or not. Whether we want it or not. Sometimes we actually want it. Sometimes we lose things and we say, oh, I'm so glad I lost that. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a burden. And yet sometimes we, we don't even notice how grateful we are to have lost it because it was snatched from us. We hadn't quite made the decision to let go of it. We mo know the most stable features could be no more. Crater Lake in Oregon, beautiful lake, used to be a, a monster mountain until it blew its top off. And now it's a monster lake. It's fantastic. But it is not what it used to be. You know, the other thing that happens is we, we, we tend to think that there, um, there's a selection process. This happened to me. And really, it just happened. This is a, a really tricky place for us. to we, we personalize things. Change actually happens to everyone. But we really notice the change that happens to us. The things we weren't planning on, the things that just weren't quite, we weren't quite ready for. It feels pointed. It feels like this was me that was the target of this. 
It just happened. So I'm not talking about cause and effect here. I'm just talking about things that happen. It isn't that it's random so much as it isn't always about me, even if it affected me. And maybe it affected me in a really big way. But it's that the separation between what happened and my relationship to it can have a lot to do with how we suffer around that thing. So it's worth just seeing. Not good or bad, just worth seeing. Impermanence leads to decline and decay, but it also leads to growth and revitalization. Change is a two-way street. Change isn't all bad. I'm retired now. I don't have to drive to work every day. This is really great. This is really great. My artichokes, I have a a group of artichokes that are planted in our yard. They have been extremely prolific. Love artichokes. And now they're dying. And the artichokes that are coming up are coming up kind of deformed and ugly. and, And we look at it and say, oh, those were such great artichokes. And now we have to cut the plants off because they're not producing something that's good anymore. So we have to let go of the artichokes. I recently visited some friends from graduate school. So, you know, these are people I met when I was in my young and juicy 20s. And now we all sit around the table and talk about parents and, that are dying or dead and children and grandchildren and our aches and pains. And this is a really graphic change. And we kind of look at one another and, and we say, what happened to us? Because in our heads, you know, we're still saying, oh, yeah, we're going to go see Mike and Linda. It'll be really great. And then, you know, there are these old people. <laughs> when did they get old? God knows what they think of me, <laughs> you know? Impermanence is something we actually understand. We all get that. We all know about change. Yet we somehow live with the notion that it's not going to change for me. You know, we have a plan for our lives. This was not in the plan. This was not in the plan. This just isn't what I wanted. Even if it's someone that uh, we, we know their death is approaching. Or we know that this, this thing is about to happen. But it's somehow, we just don't think it's going to happen. Somewhere there's that little piece of us that's, that's reserving about it. We're surprised. That's why loss is so devastating to us. Because loss is, is unplanned. It just wasn't what we were, not now, not yet. Not now. But of course, it's also, change is also the source of all good things. And sometimes good things come along and we don't even recognize them, much less expect them. Good things. Sometimes those good things happen 
when we're busy looking at something that doesn't feel so good. It just happens. And we're, we're so focused on the thing that is traumatic, we don't even notice it sneak up on us. In the same way that those plans that we've made have been interrupted, sometimes things come up and they're right there beside us. And all we have to do is see it. Just see it. So we need to just be aware. Just every once in a while, look up. Just look up. See what's happening. You know, if things weren't impermanent, we wouldn't be adults in this room. We'd still be crawling around on the floor. We wouldn't have gotten up this morning. We wouldn't be here in this room. You know, change is not a bad thing. But when we're faced with loss and sorrow, we kind of look for a way to get out of it, you know. I just want, to, I just want it to go away. And, and we'll, we'll pretend it doesn't exist. We'll say, uh, I'm bigger than this. I can deal. I can deal. We just pretend it's not there. Or, uh, or we deny the effects, you know. I'm nauseous. Well, it must be the flu going around. You know, we just we, we, we give it a different reason. We make up stories about it and say, well, this isn't really happening. But it is really happening. The real trick about change is being able to see it and say, this is what's really happening. Because very often it's all the stuff we wrap around it that is causing us suffering. Sometimes we fear that if we let go of grief, that we'll lose again what we've lost. So I'm here to tell you, it never goes away. It just doesn't go away. It changes. Grief changes. But don't worry about losing what you've lost. That's a lot of extra effort. A lot of extra effort. Sometimes we fear that if we let go of grief, we're going to lose our support system. You know, There was some talk this morning about the support system that didn't exist. But there's also this, well, you know, if I let go of grief, you know, there might be nobody here. Maybe there's just one person that's kind of hanging around, hoping, be, being there with you. And you're thinking, wow, you know, if they're only here to help me, what happens if I let go of that hand? Then there's no hand. It can be very useful to know what your fear is. It doesn't mean you have to change anything, but very useful to know what your fear is. Know what, what the elements of your grief are. Because then you can see them, and they're not masquerading as something else. At least for you, inside, know, know what it is. Ask what it is. You know, there's a lot of pressure 
when you're grieving to process. Everybody wants you to take care of it, fix it. Sometimes that's not what's needed. Sometimes it's a quiet sitting in one place and asking, what is it that I really feel? What is it that I really experience? What are my feelings? What is my body telling me? You know, I mentioned this morning the episode of when I was on retreat of remembering something from my childhood, and I felt really childish, I have to tell you. It was really, really childish. It was, a, it was you know, why can't I have a mother? Which sounds quite poignant, but it was actually a very childish feeling, and to allow that childish feeling to be in the room, I had to just sit back and say, okay. <laughs> That's, that's a real feeling. I don't have to wallow in it. I don't have to be a child. But being able to actually allow it to be in the room was extremely valuable for me. Because once I saw it, then I could say to myself, oh, that's what that was about. I get it. That I could process as an adult. But I had to let the child in the room to be able to do that. By the way, the grief I was working on at the time was very far removed from what I was experiencing. Being able to realize that some of the depth of my grief had to do with something that happened to me as a child gave me some freedom to look at what's happening now with a little less baggage. Just a little less baggage. Not, it, wasn't, it didn't lessen what's going on now. It just changed the flavor of it. See it for what it is. I get it. That's why I was so mad at that person. It was because I was reliving this. Now, sometimes we, we sort of focus on what's closest in. And it's very useful to ask the question, what else is here? What else? What else is here? We hope for wisdom in knowing how to be with where we are. We hope for wisdom. So how does wisdom come about? You know, you go, you get a shot for it. You know, you read books. No. Wisdom isn't about right and wrong. Wisdom kind of comes from another place. It's about what's useful and skillful. It is not just about knowledge. It's what's useful. What's wise for me may not be wise for you at all, and vice versa. So how do we discover what is wise for us? You know, we read books, we listen to talks, we talk to our friends, we talk to our neighbors, we talk to our therapist, we talk to our spiritual guide, we learn about things. And then we reflect. We think about them. We say, well, does this apply to what's going on with me? Is this what's going on with me? How is it different? How is it the same? And then we practice. Say, okay, I have an operating, I have an operating idea about how this is going to work, a hypothesis. We practice. And then we harvest the learning from that and say, well, you know, that's not quite right, or, whoa, that was intense. And then we reflect again, and then we practice. And then we get some more learning. So we pay attention. Pay attention to our experience, 
And we don't, we don't get stuck in this is what's true. This is what's true now. I test it. I look at it. Oh, it seems to have changed. You know, this new thing has happened. Okay, I go back. I reflect. I practice. This is how wisdom really arises. It's about applying what you've learned, both intellectually and physically, experientially in the world. Looking at it and saying, oh, it isn't abstract. It's very real and it's very personal. It can only come from you. Seeing things as they are, as well as the clarity and depth of intention, are the beginnings of wisdom. Seeing things as they are. When we're suffering, we have a story about our suffering, right? I have lots of stories. You know, the job I lost, the husband that left. I got lots of stories. And I've discovered that a lot of those stories have served me well certain times, And, you know, some of them aren't quite true. (laughs) Some of them are related to what I was seeing at the time I formed that story. And it's changed. And those stories kind of define and interpret our experience. So so, um, I may have lost my... uh, I may have lost my job because some manager somewhere said, get rid of that program. We're cutting... Get rid of that program. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. But my experience of losing my job might be, oh, I failed to deliver. Or it's that comment I made last month to my boss. I knew that was a mistake. I never should have said that, and that's why I've been fired. And we have this story about it. And you know, not only that, that boss, was, he was a jerk. That's why I told him that. And now we're carrying around the anger we're not only, we've not only lost the job and there's the pain of losing the job and the fear of not paying the bills and all of the stuff that goes with that, self-esteem, but now we're also beating up on ourselves. <laughs> we're adding to it with this story. We do that around a lot of things, you know? Uh, I, had, I had a marriage go wrong. And my husband left me for another woman. And I was pissed. I felt betrayed. I felt like a failure. I was sure if I had done something different, it would not have been true. And it took me years to understand that he left not because of me, but because of him. He left because of him. But because I was experiencing the loss, in my mind, it was all about me. (coughs) After all, I'm the person he left. But it really wasn't me. It really wasn't. It's not, I can tell you that, and there's no reason for you to believe that. Your own experience about whatever has happened to you is the only guide to what is true for you. You know, it's sort of like you hear something, you hear it over and over and over again, and then one day it just kind of clicks for you, and you say, ah, that's how I feel about that. It actually wasn't about me. But we tend to personalize what's happened, you know. Why her? Why did it happen to her? 
Why did she have to die? What could I have done to make this less? What could I have done to make this suffering less? Did I do the right thing? So we have a story around what happens. My, my, uh, my mother-in-law recently died. And uh, she was 97. We were very close. She, uh, she lived the last year of her life with increasing feebleness. And that's what happens when you get that old. And she was not happy. She was really not happy. So when the, when the occasion arose that she had an infection, she refused antibiotics and stopped eating. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, should I be trying to talk her out of this? What's, what, you know, what am I supposed to do? All of a sudden, her death was about me instead of about her. And I had to step back and say, no, it doesn't have, doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with her. And I've had to remind myself of that since then, you know. What could I have done to make it better? So not only have I lost her, but I have all this other stuff that I've been adding on to it. Seeing it has allowed me to let go of that stuff. Recognizing that I was carrying that stuff around has allowed me to let go of that stuff. So now, now I think about her death and I deal just with that. It was my husband's mother. He's grieving. It's complicated now. Now we're sort of working with each other, right? Grief is not simple. But to be able to look at this is what's going on with him. This is what's going on with me. And separate them helps me. So what I'm arguing for here is paying attention to what's really true. And, and kind of separating the weeds out a little bit. So that you can see what's actually arising. so that we can ask ourselves, what am I clinging to that I can let go of? Very often it isn't the loss that I'm clinging to. I am not clinging to my mother-in-law or the idea of my mother-in-law. For me, I've lost another mother. I've been collecting them all my life. But I look at it a different way than, oh, Why did she have to die? Because I'm separating what I see as a congenital thing that I've been carrying through my life and the loss of someone I love. And they're really separable. So I don't add them together and put the burden on top of my head. It allows me to stand a little taller. There was a, an article in the New York Times uh, yesterday, the day before, written by an art critic. And he was talking about a painting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And it was a painting by Caravaggio called The Denial of St. Peter. 
And it's, uh, it's a very dark painting with uh, light on the faces of two of the, the three people in the painting. So it's about St. Peter and this uh, soldier that he's confronting. So this art critic says he's been going back and looking at this painting every two weeks for years. And he's, he's been looking at it, and he suddenly realized, for him... The crux of the painting was neither St. Peter nor the soldier, but the maid in the center of the picture who was looking out with a look of... uh, Let me tell you exactly what he said. The longer I looked, the more it seemed to me that the saint, as a symbolic embodiment of the human frailty and faith that underpin Roman Catholic doctrine, go there, was not the lead actor in the drama. It was the maid whose eyes, catching the light with pinpoint reflections, somehow became the painting's center. Her eyes seem to have become unfocused, and she's not looking at the guard she's facing, but looking momentarily inward. Whatever precise doctrine the painting was once trying to expound, it is the maid's hesitation and humanity in the moment of accusation that, to me, now remain as the painting subject and its power. Whether this has any historical significance or whether it is what a broken-down Caravaggio near the end of his too-short life intended no longer makes much difference to me. One result of looking at a painting so long that you can see it in your mind's eye is that it does, in a very real sense, become your own. Not quite the same painting that anyone else will see. This is how we should look at our lives. Not what other people see, what we see. Then it's truly ours. What do we see? Everything is always in the process of changing into something else. My garden's forever in need of weeding and watering and planting and unplanting. Some of these changes make me happy and some are really disappointing. I won't tell you about those. My grandson is a baby becoming a little boy. And I watch him. He came over one weekend and he had just started standing up and taking his first steps. And by the end of the weekend, he was running. And I still can't tell you every moment of that change. It was rapid but it was so slow I couldn't see it. This is happening to us all the time. Unless we determinedly say, I'm not moving. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. We tend to cling to what makes us happy. Sometimes we cling to what doesn't make us happy. We cling to it for a whole variety of reasons. What would happen if I just let go? I don't push it away. I don't grab it to my body. I just stop holding on. Let it just sit in the open hand. What's it like then? There's this poem uh, called This Much I Do Remember by Billy Collins. 
It's about a memory. It was after dinner. You were talking to me across the table about something or other, a greyhound you'd seen that day or a song you liked. And I was looking past you over your bare shoulder at the three oranges lying on the kitchen counter next to the small electric bean grinder, which was also orange, and the orange and white cruets for vinegar and oil, all of which converged into a random still life, so fastened together by the haspa color and so fixed behind the animated foreground of your talking and smiling, gesturing and pouring wine and the camber of your shoulders, that I could feel it being painted within me, brushed on the wall of my skull, while the tone of your voice lifted and fell on its flight and the oranges remained fixed on the counter, the way stars are said to be fixed in the universe. I could feel it being painted within me, brushed on the wall of my skull, while the tone of your voice lifted and fell on its flight and the oranges remained fixed on the counter, the way stars are said to be fixed in the universe. Memory doesn't have to be sad. Memory can just be what it is. And we can choose what we look at. We can choose what we look at. There's a lot of freedom in that. So here are the questions. What's left out? As you're sitting with your story, what are you leaving out? What are you close to? What do you just not want to hear? Is there something there? What's that about? What we know to be true, ask the question, am I sure? Am I sure? What I know to be true, those are usually the places that we're holding on the most tightly to. I know this to be true. Not sure. Not sure. Consider how what you experience is influenced by your conditioning, by the things you know to be true, by the things that are habits of mind. You know, when you came here today, you had an intention. Maybe it wasn't a strong intention. Maybe it was a strong intention. It was some intention. I'm coming with the intention of whatever it was. Intentions are very important because what they do is condition what comes after them. Intentions are not the same thing as goals, which, you know, are solid out there, that goal which doesn't exist. Goal is a fantasy. It's not happening now. But intention is happening now. Intention is sitting right here in this room. Whatever your intention is, if it's sitting upright in the chair or falling asleep or going shopping or you showed up here for some reason, you had some intention. That intention is very valuable. It's very useful to know what your intentions are and to kind of ask what it's about. Because that condition... That, that intention is setting up the condition for the next moment. 
You know, people, t- people talk about karma like there's a, a sort of payback for every action. But really, karma is more about intention. It's about, what am I bringing to this moment? Because that's what that's what's makes something possible. Intention is a, a way of being. It's a habit of the mind. Intention is what causes us to look in a certain place for a certain thing. You know, when I was a manager in, in business, they told us that whatever you ask about first thing in the morning is what everybody who works for you is going to pay attention to. You know, so if you want to know how the schedule is, ask about the schedule. Don't ask about, did somebody order supplies? Because if you ask about supplies, they're not going to think about the schedule. They're going to be worrying about the supplies. The same thing is true in our lives. Whatever we are thinking about, wherever we point our attention, that's what's coming up. So, my happiness or unhappiness depends on my intentions and my actions, not what others wish for me. Despite what I might wish to be true, things are as they are. Things are as they are. We have a choice in every moment of seeing things as they are or painting over them and trying to make them something else. I personally am more willing to be with my sorrow than pretend it's something else. Because if I'm willing to allow it to be in the room, then I'm also willing to allow it to change, to be something different. I'm not holding on to it being the same way it always was. So here's a quote from Jack Cornfield. True peace comes with the discovery that we can respect the seasons of life with a spacious and undefended heart. In it, we learn to trust, to rest in the truth of the way things are, to willingly accept the measure of joy and sorrow we are given. True peace comes with the discovery that we can respect the seasons of life with a spacious and undefended heart. In it, we learn to trust, to rest in the truth of the way things are, to willingly accept the measure of joy and sorrow we are given. May you find joy. Thanks. So, we have a follow-up to this, but I thought I might ask if you have any questions or observations or complaints about that. You know, I, I had the... Yes, please. Sure. So uh, the principle of karma has to do with uh, setting causes and conditions for what comes afterward. And the kind of pop culture way of looking at karma is 
If you're a good person, good things happen. If you're a bad person, bad things happen. Good and bad things happen to everyone. But our experience, there's a, there's a couple of, the, the first two chapters of the Dhammapada go like this. Uh, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind. And suffering follows like the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So that's the principle of, of karma. That if, if we enter the moment with uh, a, a positive view of life, an open view of life, we're more likely to find that in the next moment. If we, if we, it's, it's just sort of the principle of doing metta. You know, when, when we do metta, it's about changing our own heart. It's not about what's going on out there. I'm sorry? Metta. Metta. So metta is, is wishing, uh, wishing, good wishes for uh, yourself and for other people. So it, it is a way of conditioning your heart to, for openness and loving kindness. And that's, that's what we're doing. We're setting up the conditions. Whereas if I am angry about something and I'm sitting around saying, well, that so-and-so, you know, this, was, this should not have happened and this, this, is, this is unfair and, and this is... I, I, you're building up the energy, Right? And you're building up the story around this thing that is, is creating ill will. And how are you going to move from this feeling of ill will to something that's not as constricted and, and stomach-wrenching? You're going to do that not by pretending it's not true. Anger is here. You just don't have to be the anger. You don't have to reinforce the anger. You can stop telling the tale. Yeah, so... So, uh, so I'll give you an example. Um, when my husband left me, I was really pissed. And I wanted only bad things to happen to him. And um, it made me a very sour person. Because that's where I put all my energy. And then one day I decided, well, you know... He was doing the best he could. Limited person that he is. <laughs> Actually, he's a, very, he's a wonderful person, but anyway. <laughs> um, and so I forgave him, right? And then one day I asked myself, so what if he wasn't doing the best he could do? Did you forgive him then? And I had to reopen that and look at that, that whole feeling all over again, you know? Oh, I see. It was a conditional forgiveness. <laughs> I get it. It was a condition. If he was doing the best he could do, then I'd forgive him. You know? Now, none of this had anything to do with him. It had only to do with my heart. It had to do with what I was carrying into the next moment, whether I was going to continue to carry the resentment or whether I was going to be free of that resentment. And the only way to be free of that resentment was to stop telling tales about him. That was the only way. I mean, there, there are, you know, in, in desperate circumstances, when somebody was 
Um, I, I do a lot of hospice work, and people have different cultural things that they do. And there was a, a man who was dying, and his family came in and insisted that he be dressed down to his shoes. This is a cultural thing. It was a Chinese family, and it's important that you have your clothes on when you die. It was so uncomfortable for him, and it was so difficult for me to... to I was helping the CNA dress the man. And I kept reminding myself that this didn't have anything to do with me and that this was a cultural thing that he probably would have supported if he had been capable of supporting it. And so what I did was metta. I said, may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe. May I be happy. And it softened my heart. It softened me so that I could just do this thing for them. This thing I didn't want to do. So that's, that's, how, that's the karma. It's what follows from what is happening now. It's setting up the conditions. It isn't a, a quid pro quo. Quid quo, pro quo, quid pro quo. <laughs> I can almost say that. So, I'm sorry? We knew what you meant. Good. That's good. So I think I've said more than I need to say about that. But does that make sense? It's okay? Anything else? Yes. I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear. There was a point of confusion. Okay. Uh huh. Um, talk about allowing the sorrow. Yes. And um, by doing that, you actually allow some change. Yes. Uh, but then on the other hand, you also talked about. Um, it's on. You talked about um, not to cling. So how do you reconcile that? I, I, I say it again. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. The whole thing? No, no. Okay, so, so I talked about allowing sorrow. Right. At, to allow but change. But not clinging. But not clinging. Right. Ah, well, see, it's the principle of the open hand. Okay, so, so if I'm clinging to sorrow, it's my sorrow. Uh, I'm very sad. This is... Let me give you... Um, I want to give you a real example. So uh, one day I noticed that I was sad. I was just sad. It's not a big sadness. We're not talking about a major grief here. It was, a, it was a small sadness. I just noticed I was sad. And I had this feeling. I said, where is this feeling in my body? And I had this feeling in the middle of my chest, this just little kind of ache, this kind of ache. And I just watched it and watched it and watched it. I didn't try to figure out where it came from or what it was related to or what it meant uh, I, I didn't know why I was sad. I just recognized it as sadness. And I just was watching it and watching it, and pretty soon it felt like it was pulsing instead of, you know, it was just, just a little pulsing feeling. And, and then it, it became kind of like a caress. I mean, literally, just, oh, oh. And, and the experience for me was compassion. It was just, oh, I'm sorry about that. But it wasn't, it wasn't, Oh, I'm so sad. My life is really horrible. When will this sadness ever go away? It just changed because I allowed it to be there. Instead of trying to figure out what it was, I said, oh, there's sadness here. So I wasn't putting a lot of energy into making it go away. Now, if you have a big sadness, 
birthday. So that, that was a little, that was just a small thing, you know, where you just have kind of, you, you, you recognize you're a little depressed. Right? So if I have something that's bigger, then I look at it and I say, uh, uh, rather than saying, okay, I've got to deal with this sadness. I have to do something about it. I have to, uh, I have to go make myself feel better. Instead of doing any of that stuff, I just acknowledge I am really sad. So I'm going to pay attention that that sadness doesn't affect everything else in my life today. I'm really upset. I recognize I'm upset. I turn to my husband. I say, I'm a little upset today. I want you to not take anything I say too seriously. It's, it's you know, if I, if I snarl, it is not because you're doing something wrong. It's because I'm really sad today. So I make a place for it. I don't make excuses for it. I don't try to chase it away. And it changes. It's not the same. It changes. So I don't, I'm, not, I'm not holding it that, that it, it, you know, this is, this is a sorrow. It looks like this. It's shaped like this. It behaves like this. And therefore, I'm going to be this way. I leave the possibility for anything to happen. But I don't chase it away. Does that make sense? Seem possible? Seems like a story. <laughs> it's true. This is what happens. You know, it, it's just allowing what is true to be true. Despite what I may wish to be true, things are as they are. There's a whole lot of freedom in that. There, there are things that, uh, uh, there are people in my life I wish behaved in a different way. I wish they would, they, there's a lot of pain around my not being able to save them. Things are as they are. Their happiness is dependent on their intentions, not my wishes for them. That's the same spirit I take to holding sorrow and grief. Things are as they are. So, not this. Not this. Not grasping. Not pushing away. Allowing it to be true. We think we have to be angry in order to make changes in the world. Uh-huh. And I know that allowing can, can actually help us to make change. But could you talk about how that works? Yeah. Uh, I think when, uh, there's an important thing about anger to be aware of. I, I consider anger hurtful. And that's because it hurts me when I'm angry. I can feel it in my body. It hurts me. Um, one thing that is true of anger is that it's an energetic emotion. There's a lot of energy in anger. And it's important to separate energy from the cause of the anger, which is different. So if you recognize that, um, that you're feeding anger just because you like the surge of the energy or you want that energy, know that that energy doesn't have to arise out of anger. And when you separate them then you have the energy to carry forward for change that isn't tied to something that is negative and hurtful and full of ill will. 
Does that make sense? Tell me a little bit more about how the allowing kind of allows you then to take step. Okay. So um, anger is a really big topic. Um, so. Okay, I, that's not what's important. Can we just talk more about not accepting or not allowing? A lot of times people will, will say, I don't want to accept that. I don't want, I don't want that in my life. Okay. And I, and I say, well, you know, if you accept it, you'll be able to make changes more easily, but I'd like to understand how that works better. Okay, so um, I don't use the word accept very often. I use the word allow. And I, I think there's an energetic difference between those because in acceptance, there's a tendency to think it's okay. When you allow it to be true, it just means that you're not fighting reality. That's what I mean by it. That it is that I'm not fighting what's true. I'm not wasting any energy fighting what's true. That doesn't mean that I think it's okay or that I, I won't work to change it or I won't try to convince somebody of something different than what they believe is good or valuable for them. It doesn't mean that I sit back and do nothing. I'm I'm talking about a kind of equanimity, where equanimity is being present for what's true. It doesn't mean that you sit back and allow bad things to happen to you. It doesn't, you, you don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to stand in front of somebody. There's a great story that I heard twice while I was on retreat, so I'm going to tell it. Sharon Salzberg went to, um, was in India, and she was riding in one of these rickshaws, and it was flooded. And as she was going along, some guy came up and tried to take the rickshaw away. And she was very distraught and didn't know what to do, and she hurried the guy on, and she kind of pushed him away and, and she got to her teacher, who was named Menindra, and Menindra said, you should have taken your umbrella and with total loving kindness and mindfulness hit him over the head. You don't have a responsibility to become a victim. And in fact, what, what you're allowing in that case is allowing that this guy is threatening you. You're not pretending that he's not threatening you. You're not being so peaceful that you're allowing yourself to be dragged out of the rickshaw. Does that make a distinction? You're recognizing the truth. You're recognizing the truth. Seeing things as they are. Yeah. Anyone else? Okay. Thanks. So now, we're going to do... A little exercise. I'm sorry? No, let's, let's, let's stop that. Thank you. I'm sorry? You want to say anything about the recording? About the recording? We're going to. This recording is just, that's the only thing that we've recorded. And